Uh, let's get started tonight in what on paper is a rather short lesson. And what I mean by that is I think I have three verses tonight. Three different verses, two from one book, one from another. I don't have a lot of screens to share with you this evening. I really try to listen every week um, to the Spirit on what is where we are in the journey. When we first started these meetings, of course, we had the book of John, and that consumed us for literally over two years. From there, moving on to 1 John, from there, moving on to the Sermon on the Mount, we had this plan every week that you could look out ahead on the calendar and say, yeah, based on our speed, we'll still be in that book, we'll be in that chapter. And we never really tried to do that, but it happened that way. Um, and then this summer, when the Holy Spirit started really impressing on me to look at the church, uh, we did that through the book of Acts, and we've let that do what it wants to do. Um, what happened is that we, we ended up with that lesson. I'm just trying to paint why we're here. Um, we, we ended up with that lesson on principalities and powers and how the church has been given the mission that is not the mission we've often picked up because a lot of times the church thinks their mission is to save the lost and grow. And so we're always about trying to see people, get people saved and, get, and make the church bigger. And I'm not rock, throwing rocks at the church. I love the church, but you know as well as I do that a lot of times what we mean by get people saved is get people to agree with our doctrine and get all that other junk out of them from the other places they've been going. And once we get them sort of lined up with our way of thinking, and then our church can grow because we've got all, everybody that agrees with each other. And unfortunately what's happened, I think, in the church is that we have this almost Christian confidence that borders on cockiness in which we don't have any questions about anything. And I think the worst way to grow spiritually is to stop asking questions. Because when you stop asking questions, you stop wrestling for answers. If you've already got all the answers, why? there's no questions to ask. And unfortunately, sometimes we have church in America like we don't have anything to ask. And uh, I, I'm, I'm glad to see an environment that is starting to shift. Sitting in this room, sitting in other rooms, talking to believers and listening to them wrestle out hard topics, listening to them wrestle with questions. And it means that the church is growing. Out of that principalities and power sermon, we landed on what the church is ultimately going to do is proclaim the wisdom of God to those principalities and powers. And I told you that that wisdom of God is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. And Paul said, we preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. So out of that, for the last two weeks, we've been doing a mini series. I say it's mini because I don't really know how long it is. I don't even know week to week what we're gonna do, but it's on the cross of Christ. So two weeks ago, we talked about the scandal of the cross and what that meant. And last week we talked about the cross as a burning bush. I was awake till about 2.30 this morning with four or five very powerful images repeating themselves in my spirit about the cross. And so when I got up to really land today to go, okay, we've got to come up with where we're going tonight. Um, it was a matter of seeing which one kept, I've used this phrase to you guys before, matter of see which one where the flag kept flying. You know, you got all these, the flags are all blowing. We, you can preach this, you can preach this. And so they start lowering until there's just that one left flying. And I want to land on that one tonight. Technically, I'm going to title this the cross as a gateway. The phrase gateway is really not what I saw in my spirit. Um, I'll explain what I saw in a moment. But I want to, to use as the idea that the cross actually led us 
from one place and into another place. And I don't just mean Old Testament, New Testament, because sort of the, the easy hermeneutic there is there's an Old Testament and then there's the New Testament and the cross becomes that spot where everything goes through. And, and, and I, I know that that's convenient, but it's not necessarily where the break ought to be, I think, in the timeline of the Bible. is not Malachi to Matthew. Uh, but rather, what Jesus does at the cross brings us into a whole new world. I want to start, before I read any text, with a, a really quick testimony as to what I... as to something that excites me very much um, in regards to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I got a call this week from, a, from some faithful partners in California who have been a, a, a vital part of our ministry for several years now. And in fact, they used to help host our meetings in California when we do the monthly. And they called me and asked for a few sermons. They had a young man that was uh, inquisitive and asking questions about Christ and grace. And so they, they were trying to put some things in front of him to help him out. And they wanted some things that I thought that we had preached that would be simple, um, that would be relevant. So I gave them a list and I got a text on one night this, this last week that this this young man had, had come to Christ and made a commitment for Christ and was now starting to eat those messages up and really consume them. And it really excited me. I wanted to share that with you because I, I want you to know that we talk a lot about identity. We talk a lot about believers knowing they're righteous. Um, I don't ever want to lose the excitement of people coming to Jesus. Lost people coming to Jesus. People who are lost in this world coming to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So I want to celebrate that. I want to celebrate that young man and I want to celebrate so many more like him. I'm, getting, I'm hearing testimonies of people coming to Christ. And what I mean by coming to Christ personally, what I mean by it is not saying the prayer. I mean walking into Christ by faith. I think that's actually a journey. You can say a sinner's prayer, but there's a journey of coming to Jesus and I'm excited to, to, to help put a little flashlight on someone's trail and go, hey, let me show you what Jesus looks like. So that's been exciting. Um, that, that leads me into this, this idea that, uh, well, it doesn't lead me to it. It is it. The cross of Jesus Christ is why that matters. Because Jesus died on the cross and resurrected from the dead, we are proclaimers of good news, and we're hoping that people will place faith in a crucified and resurrected Jesus, not just in a principles Jesus, not just in a Sermon on the Mount Jesus, but in a dead and resurrected and ascended to the right hand of the Father Jesus. And, and I, I want to present to you, let me just start to filter through some thoughts because I got a lot of things that have just sort of jumped in my spirit today about the cross. It's also why I didn't give a lot of text because I know me. A lot of text means we're going to end up on that screen with a lot of text, working, 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 working. And I didn't want to do that. I just wanted to kind of unpack some things that I've got in my heart about the cross. So let me start with this. I think that it's a mistake to think of the cross only in historical terms. Jesus died on a cross approximately 2,000 years ago on a hill outside of Jerusalem. He died at the hands of the Roman Empire. He died as a criminal and a stranger and an alien from Rome and they didn't kill their own on crosses but they killed the vagabond and he died as a loser and that is a historical event. Everything I just said to you is true. I just don't think it makes the cross relevant for you because if we preach the cross as a historical event all we're doing is playing on your sense of pity and pain. 
It's why when we watch a movie like The Passion of the Christ, it moves us because he's bloodied. It moves us because he's being beat up. And we don't like to see people beat up. We don't like to see people bloody. And we certainly don't like to see innocent people beat up and bloodied. And so the visual of it then, we connect to it in a very painful way, but not in a very spiritual way. We're just watching a guy get beat to a bloody pulp. And if the cross is a historical event, then it then it's kind of stays in that spot. I want you to see the cross as an ongoing event. And that's very difficult to land on because we're not watching Jesus die out here on a cross. We know he died on a cross. He's not going to die tomorrow on a cross. So how is it an ongoing event? Let me hit pause on that for a moment and try to explain it by using the book of Revelation. Okay? The book of Revelation for a lot of people in the church, is a book about what's going to happen on planet Earth in the next few days, weeks, months, years, decades. And depending on how passionate you are about futurist eschatology, it's a book that might be happening right now on the news and is probably going to happen in the next week or month or whatever. Most of my Christian walk, that's how Revelation's been presented to me. Um... I think that you're better served to see Revelation as a book about events that happened in the past to Israel to the, in the Roman Empire and in Jerusalem, but that it's not just a historical record of what happened in the past. It's also a warning of what is going to happen to any of God's people that live under the shadow of an empire. And so you got seven churches being warned about an empire. And sometimes that empire manifests itself as a dragon. And sometimes that empire manifests itself as a beast. But the victor is victor by being victim. And so you've got the lamb overcoming the beast. And the church in Revelation is being warned, choose wisely. You got beast and you got lamb. Choose lamb. Don't choose beast. And Revelation then becomes a book about what happened, but it becomes a warning to me. Paul, be careful. Watch out for the beast. Sometimes the beast flies a flag, a national flag. Sometimes the beast is a corporation. Sometimes the beast is a mindset. But choose your gods wisely. And watch out because the beast will rise up out of your darkness. He'll rise up out of your sea to swallow you. Now to me, that's an approach of Revelation that makes sense historically and makes sense ongoing. Do the same thing with the cross. Jesus died on the cross. They put nails through his hands and his feet. They put thorns on his skull and they stuck a spear in his side. His heart burst and blood and water flowed. At Calvary, he was stripped of his dignity. He was stripped of his clothes. He was stripped of his title. He was stripped of his future and then his life. And what he does is go down into the grave so that he can come up in a newness of life. That's historical. But the cross is ongoing that Christ takes everything that's in me and nails it to his cross. He does that today and he does that tomorrow and he does that in six months. And the me that is being shaped right now by the hands of the great potter and I'm being fashioned into what he wants me to be, that me has some imperfections and some impurities and some junk that will be taken out of me, not by God beating me with a belt or rod, but by God introducing me to the death of the cross. Bring what you are to me and let me take care of it. That makes the cross a historical event. That makes the cross a present event. And that makes, take, makes the cross a tomorrow event. Or to put it in Pauline language, when he said, I 
am crucified with Christ. And the present, the perfect tense, I am, to telestai, I have been crucified, I am being crucified, and I ever shall be crucified. Historical event, current event, future event. Do we have any biblical precedent for that? Jesus introduces himself at the top of Revelation. He who was, he who is, he who is to come. In other words, I'm in your past, I am your present, I will be your future. Where I think the church has lost a little focus on the cross is that we have it as a historical event that makes us cry. We have it as a present event for sinners. Come to Jesus, old rugged cross. Get saved, blood drips on your sins. We don't have it as an ongoing future event in our walk in which not in which we're beating ourselves over our sins, but in which we are bringing what we are, ever bringing what we are into who Jesus is. And as we learn who we are, we bring that to Jesus. Because there's parts of Paul White I haven't yet encountered. They're down in the basement. And they're going to come out. And they might come out in my encounter with you. And they might come out in my encounter with my enemy. And they might come out at inopportune moments. But they're going to come out. It's like I told you last week. The Bible starts with a snake and it ends with a dragon. And the reason for that is if you don't cut the head off the snake early, the thing just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And so the problems that are in me continue to surface. But my answer isn't getting smarter, isn't getting holier. My answer is continue to accept what Jesus has done on my behalf and allow him to take that part of me there. The reason I call tonight the cross as a gateway, I don't like the phrase gateway for what the Lord put in my spirit. Here's really what I saw. I think the cross is like a needle. You know the eye of a needle that you put the thread through? And it's not easy to do until you're used to it. And then it's quite simple to do. But the, the, eye, the, the thread that goes through the eye of the needle, once it goes through that eye of the needle, the only way out is backwards. It can't loop over on itself. It has to come back out through that eye. In other words, there's a brand new possibility through the eye of that needle. You can stitch it, the hole. You can fix it because the eye of the needle. So in a way, the cross becomes the great fixing point. But, but better than that, the cross is the place in which everything, I'm gonna, I'll flip this for you. You're facing this way. So here's your Old Testament world, all right? It's a mirror for me. Your Old Testament world, and then the cross of Jesus Christ, and then what you and I would know as the new covenant, what some people might even call the present kingdom. Okay. Your entire body of the Old Testament, your entire body of the, the history of man's encounters with God, Everything from Sinai to, or from Exodus to Sinai all the way through the prophets is really heading towards this climactic event that is the death of Jesus Christ. It's not heading towards the climactic event of the birth of Jesus Christ, even though they thought it was. They thought they were looking for a savior in a first advent. It's why they missed him. Because they didn't take into account things like Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. Who can declare his generation? And in that, we're talking about someone who is dying. We're talking about someone who is paying a price. 
Then the cross becomes the place through which all of it gets pulled. You can, you can distill the entire Old Testament world down and squeeze it through the, eye of, through, the, through the cross, which I call the needle. The eye of the needle is the resurrection, the opening, out of which something explodes into a new world. So this whole body, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, the Bible, Israel story, Gentile story, all of it distills down into a man. And it's not that hard to find when you start looking for him back here. Because if you start looking for him, then he becomes the tree of life in Genesis. He becomes the deliverer in Exodus. He becomes the Passover lamb. He becomes the way through the Red Sea. He becomes the rock that kills Goliath. He becomes Ezekiel's wheel in the middle of a wheel. He beca- All of these stories start to say Jesus, Jesus. He's the fourth man in the fire for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You, get to, you see it through the prism of the cross. Only when you start to look through the cross do you recognize, oh, that was Jesus, that was Jesus, that was Jesus. Maybe my terminology's wrong. It wasn't Jesus. He's not Jesus till he's born. There's, there's Christ. There's the Son of God. There's the Son of God. There's the Son of God. I've always thought it was kind of funny that the, first, that the person in the Old Testament that actually saw him and called him Son of God was a heathen. A heathen king throws Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a fiery furnace and goes, how many people do we throw in there? And they go, three. He goes, and why? I see four. And the fourth looks like the Son of God, which is that's interesting. That's fascinating. Um, sometimes the insight, by the way, of the world is even tighter than the inside of the church. Um, it's like Pontius Pilate, behold the man, you know, when he introduces Jesus. And that might be the perfect introduction of Jesus. The man, the new Adam, the last Adam, here he is. And so take all of that and then distill it down and it comes in through the cross. And then out of the cross, everything points backwards to the cross. We don't, we no longer, because of Jesus, I hope this visual works for you, because of Jesus, we're living out here in, and, and this little slice right here might be Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Galatians, Ephesians, we're way out here. And, and I actually think maybe we're, we're like right here. We just think we're right here. I really think that we might be the early church. Because we all like to look back and go, you know, the early church, and I'm, I do that all the time. The early church said this, the early church did that. But I think in seven or eight millennium, they might look back and go, the early church of the 21st century. Boy, those dorks didn't know much, did they? And that's probably going to be pretty accurate. They didn't know very much. So we don't know, how, we don't know what all this is, but this is the infinity of the kingdom. This is the fullness of everything God has. We haven't seen it all. We're not walking in all of it, but it's never going to be back here again. And this is where we make our mistake as Christians is we're living over here in the free favor of God. We're living in grace. We're living in the kingdom. And we're grabbing the principles of the other side of that cross. And we're, 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 to do it, we've we got to knock the cross over. You know, here's Jesus on the cross, and we, we can't reach Moses, so we just knock the cross over and go get all the Moses we need and all the David we need and all the old covenant we need and all the principles we need. And we try to jam them into this world. And they're alien. They don't exist over here. They can't breathe this oxygen. This is why Jesus said to his disciples, I have things I want to tell you and you're not capable of understanding them now because you don't have the equipment. You can't breathe it. Like I could put it out there, but you can't breathe it in. It's foreign air to you. 
when the Holy Spirit comes in, the Holy Spirit, by the way, is the energizing force of this side of the cross. He is the kingdom. What is the kingdom of God? Not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy. Where? In the Holy Spirit. The whole kingdom's the Holy Spirit. That's the, that's the oxygen over here. And so problem is reaching back here to take their stuff. Church is doing that all the time. Because anytime we've got something we want to try to explain in moral terms and we can't find a good enough verse in the New Testament, well, by God, we'll just knock the cross down, reach back there in the Old Testament, grab whatever we need. Because, I mean, who needs to go through the eye of the needle when you got this really convenient commandment back here that you don't live half of them anyway, but at least you've got this one that seems relatively clear on what to tell people. And, and so over here breathing the oxygen of the Holy Spirit, we need to stay on our side of the cross. Why? Because the eye of the needle is my resurrection. The stone rolled away. And out of that, boom, comes a whole new world. Maybe distill it down to this. This is a good way. This is really elementary. It's deep, but it's not. Um, it's, it's as deep as you want to make it, but it sounds real simple. Start here. There's really only been two men on the earth. Adam and Jesus. What Paul called first Adam, last Adam. Now, I know there's been more than two men on the earth. But for theological purposes, to understand the condition of humanity, think of it as there has only been two men on the earth. And out of God comes one man. And out of God comes another man. And what one man messed up, another man got right. And where does he get it right? Through the eye of that needle. Not just in his birth, not just in his life, not just in his preaching, not just in his healing. We are not followers just of what he did. We are followers of what he did because he came out of the grave. And because he came out of the grave, it validated everything that he was. And he was the one who came out of the grave and therefore came out as us. So pull the whole of Scripture Pull the hole, the W-H-O-L-E of Scripture through the hole of the cross. And out the other side of that resurrected man comes the air you breathe called the Holy Spirit, the life of the kingdom. And never be guilty again of knocking the cross over to go back here and pick and choose what you need. This is the shadows of the substance that is to come, the man Christ Jesus. The cross is the gateway. And this is why Paul said, we preach Christ crucified. Because he said, that's where, that's where it all changed. Now, let's see Jesus as that. One simple little verse. John 10, 9. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. You've, we've read this verse umpteen times in this room. You've heard me talk about this all up and down, every way that I know to talk about it. So I will not dwell here. I just wanted it to be a verse that put the door in Jesus. And a door means that something's been opened to which you have access that without it being opened, you would not have access. That's the whole reason we have the door. Because the door is something you can close. And closed doors are symbols in the Bible of lack of intimacy. You close the door on someone you don't want to eat with. It's why the seventh church in Revelation, Laodicea, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will open up and come in, 
I'll come in and sup with him and him with me. Jesus is not trying to get the church at Laodicea to get saved. They're already his church. He's trying to get them to open the door of intimacy. Let me in. I want to eat with you. I got some stuff I want to share with you. I got some stuff I want to tell you. I want to hear about your day. I want to hear about your life, your hopes, your dreams. I can't do that if you don't open the door. Jesus says, I'm the door. So as far as I'm concerned, whatever is over here in this, this hot Holy Spirit oxygenated world called the kingdom is accessible through the door. And the door is Jesus. And the key is Jesus. And the whole wall is Jesus. And everything filters through who he is and what he does. Now, that cross serves as that spot between two worlds, so to speak. Between the world that was and the world that is to come. And yet, wherever you are is the world that is, which is here. But you're actively living in that space of we're actually repeating this over and over in our lives. We're repeating this. I'm coming out of where I was and I'm going into what I could be. You are not what you were when you were 18. You are not what you were when you were 10. You are not what you were when you were 5. When you are 30, you will not be what you were at 20. That process goes on and on and on. Sometimes it's very stark and sometimes it's very subtle. But the you that exists in that present condition has been being shaped the entire time and you're not what you used to be. So in a, in a way, we're always moving from that to that. We're always in that journey of what was, what is, what, what is to come. But in the realm of the Spirit, that cross serves as that door, that needle, that spot where which everything is pulled through and then the eye of that needle, the resurrection of Christ, is not just a historical event. Here's what we did with the cross a moment ago. I told you, don't just put Jesus on a cross outside of Jerusalem and the guy died 2,000 years ago because all he'll do is just cry. Oh, that's pitiful how they treated him. But if the cross becomes an ever event, then you realize that your death is in his death. And you realize that the pa your past is in him so that you can be new. But you can only do that because of the light that comes out. That's the resurrection. So... Don't make the resurrection only an event in your past. When did Jesus resurrect? Easter. Three days after he died. And then what happens a lot of times in the church is we preach our only resurrection sermon on Easter. Which is unbelievable when you consider it is who we are. We are literally resurrected people. And I did not accidentally use the word literally. We are literally Resurrect. I know that doesn't even hit our ears right because we think literal resurrection is the day when graves pop open. But the New Testament, and we've walked through this before with you more than once, but the New Testament presents resurrection as a reality, as an event that happened 2,000 years ago in a garden tomb, as an event that happens in Christ when you come to the knowledge of who Jesus is in you, and that happens every time you rise up in newness. There's that great possibility of resurrection. Here's the verse, as far as I'm concerned, that marries the cross and the resurrection, maybe like no other single verse in the New Testament. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. If Christ is not risen, 
then your faith is futile. Another translation says, your faith is in vain. Look at that phrase. You are still in your sins. All right? It just doesn't take a ton of exegesis to bring this out. We don't have to work long. If Christ did not come out of the tomb, forget your faith. Who cares what you believe? You want to believe in a good Jesus? Great. You want to believe in, in the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount? Fine. Go for it. You, here's a phrase I hate, so I'm going to use it. Very tongue-in-cheek. You do you. Big deal. You do you. Your faith doesn't matter. Who cares what you believe? Because whatever you believe, it's as good as what the next guy believes. I mean, so you do you. Big deal. Because if Christ didn't come out of the grave, then you don't have any hope anyway. Because what happens to people, and this is the, this is the crucial point, what happens to people that stand up for their principles? Jesus stands up for his principles. Jesus refuses to draw a sword and fight back. What happens if you do that? They'll kill you. Okay, so if you don't resurrect, well, maybe you should have fought back. Because now you're dead. And you know what? That's actually how we live. We live like the resurrection didn't happen. What's going to happen to me if I don't stand up for myself? They're going to run over me. What's the worst that could happen? They'll kill me. Listen, if you don't resurrect, shouldn't you have fought back? I mean, if there is nothing on this side of that, there's the cross, and everything's been building up to it. This is death right here, by the way. And there's nothing over here. Fight back. Live as long as you can. Jesus was doing the wrong thing. I think we actually live like we don't believe in resurrection. We live like we believe what we're supposed to do is win. Crush the opposition. Overcome them at all costs. Jesus steps into his death with the full knowledge that he will be resurrected into his father. How do I know he knew? Because he kept saying it to his disciples. I'm going away, but don't worry, I'm going to come back. I'm not going to leave you orphans. In fact, I'm going to come back in three days. The sign of the prophet Jonah, three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so shall the Son of Man be in three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He said it over and over again. He kept saying to them, this is in the end. And they keep facing death with violence. They're pulling swords and cutting people's ears off in the garden. And Jesus has been saying to them, you don't get it. We're supposed to lay this down. We get rid of one so we can pick up the other. You can't pick up the other unless you lay this down. It's why in John 17, Jesus is excited to pick up the glory that he had with the Father. He goes, I'm ready to be glorified with you again. I know there's something on the other side of this. So if Christ didn't rise, then who cares what you believe? Because then this is the real kicker on that. You're still in your sins. Because the reality is, stay with me here, the cross did not take your sins away. If Christ isn't risen, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. What the cross does is a lot of stuff, one thing of which is sin and evil is judged at Calvary. But what good does that do you? But because Jesus rises, then if his death truly becomes your death, then his resurrection must have become your resurrection. And if he is resurrected into a newness of life, then your sins stayed at the cross right here 
so that the new you could come out on the other side. Where are your sins at the cross? Let's get a little metaphysical here. How long ago did Jesus die on the cross? 2,000 years ago. You hadn't committed one sin yet. You weren't even born. And yet all of your sins died with Jesus on the cross. How is that possible? Because in the economy of God, there's only been two men on the earth. He sees mankind and man's failure and he becomes a man. And at Calvary, he becomes the new man on the earth. And if any of you be in Christ, old things are passed away. All things have become new. Where's your sins? Right there. You're not carrying them. They're in Christ. Well, why am I affected by them? Because you're in the natural realm and you do stupid things. But I mean, where are your sins as far as their judgment? Right there. In Christ. To me, that is a powerful reality. But I want to put, pump the brakes for a second. Simply for this cause. Who are we to know everything Jesus was doing on the cross? I don't know everything Jesus was doing on the cross. I mean, the reality is that it looks very much like at the cross, the Roman Empire crushes a bug. Something that had been just at worst a bee in their bonnet. And he wasn't really that big of a deal. It's not like he had an army. He was just a dude that kind of got on somebody's nerves and they killed him. Big deal. The cross was another stranger dying next to the road. Rome probably killed a half a million of them in their day or more. So maybe the cross is just losers lose. The cross is also, for purposes of Israel's sacrificial system, it happens at the evening sacrifice, at the time when you kill the second lamb of the day. And in that, Christ becomes a lamb whose blood is for a new exodus that you wipe the blood of Jesus on the doorposts of your heart, the door mantle of your heart, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And so the cross becomes a lamb. Is that all it is? Well, Jesus says, I go to the cross now that I come into this world for this cause to be judged. And if I am judged and lifted up, I'll draw all of it to me. So the cross becomes sort of a lightning rod. It becomes the place where judgment happens. According to Zechariah, the cross is the place where God breaks his covenant with Israel. Give me 30 pieces of silver, I'll snap the old covenant. We'll enter into a new covenant. So the cross is a bunch of stuff. What I won't do anymore is tell people what the cross is not. Let me give you an example. I'm going to tell you something that helped me that I would never preach today. All right? It helped me. When I came into the knowledge of the finished work, it helped me. It sounded like this. God poured out his wrath on Jesus at the cross so that God will never pour his wrath out on you. That helped me. When I, when I came into the fullness of grace, it helped me to see that God, who had been mad at me because I'm a sinner, took his anger that was going to hit me and redirected it to Jesus and hit Jesus at Calvary, smitten of God and afflicted and killed his own son 
so that I could live. That helped me a lot. And I'll tell you why it helped me. It helped me because I'd always saw God as mad. My entire life, God was ticked off. He's mad at you for your actions. He's mad at you for your inactions. Sins of commission, sins of omission. He's mad at your laziness. He's mad at your lack of discipline. He's mad at your rebellion. He's mad at the way you're thinking. He's mad at the things you're doing in private. He's certainly mad at the things you're doing in public. He's mad at how you don't love people right. I had every category you could get God mad. He was mad, and he was getting madder all the time. And I saw stuff like Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I just thought that was just darn good preaching. Because we're sinners and we're in the hands of an angry God. And you know what? We're lucky he don't kill all of us right now. So when I heard this message, an angry God took his wrath out on Jesus so God will never be mad at you. I, once I bought into that, I went, oh man, thank God he was mad at Jesus. He had to be mad at me. I'll never preach that now. And I'll tell you why. Because I don't think God killed his son. I believe that a lot of things were happening at Calvary, but God and Jesus were on the same page. Paul said God was in Christ, reconciling the world back to himself. God didn't give Jesus over at the cross and turn his back on him. Now, I said all of that to say this. It really helped me. And I think it was theological mumbo-jumbo. But it helped. In fact, I don't know how fast I would have gotten to where I am today had I not taken that turn and you know why it helped? Because I had a skewed vision of the wrath of God as the baseline of my Christianity. And I needed that skewed vision taken care of first. So I had God so mad, I needed God to be appeased. I didn't have time. I haven't worked this out quite right, so stay with me. I didn't really have time to get it right theologically. I had to get right. You understand what I mean? I didn't have time to go get the theology correct. I just needed this wrathful God appeased, man. It's going to kill me. If I, don't, if I don't get this wrathful God taken care of, I'm going to quit. I'm done. And God knew it. I got to take care of the wrathful side of it. So I will say that what I now consider poppycock theology, which is penal substitutionary atonement, that God beat Jesus up so he didn't have to beat you up. I won't preach that. I don't write that. I don't believe that. But I landed there. Now, why am I saying that? Because sometimes the cross becomes things to us that are not necessarily theologically sound, but they become things to us in the place of our need. And that's okay because the Holy Spirit never stops working on us. And so I don't believe that Jesus had 1,000 things in his mind that he thought he was doing when he went to the cross. When he's standing there in front of Pontius Pilate, he's like, I got to do this because I got to be the Passover lamb. I got to do this because I got to execute an exodus. I got to do this because I got to be the lightning rod for God's wrath. I got to do this because I got to be the breaking of an old covenant. No, I believe that when he stood there, he heard the sound of his father saying, permit even this, permit even this, permit even this, permit even this. Because that's what came out of his mouth in the garden when Peter draws a sword and cuts someone's ear off and Jesus goes, permit even this. Because he, he told us, I only say what I hear my dad say. So in the garden, he goes, permit even this. He doesn't say, Peter, I got seven reasons I'm going to the cross and you need to put your sword up and take notes. He doesn't do that. And you might say, well, what in time? No, I'm telling you, I don't think he knew. 
I literally don't think it was in the theological mind of Jesus standing in the garden. Got to do it for this reason, this reason, this reason, this reason. He's just listening to his dad. Dad, if there's any way we can not drink this cup, then let us not drink this cup. Oh, you want me to drink this cup? Okay, I'll drink this cup. What's it sound like? Permit even this. Pilate's yakking. Pilate's talking. Herod's talking. This is Jesus on the night of his crucifixion. Here's the voices in his ear. Herod, Pilate, Herod, Pilate. What's Jesus doing? Just standing there. Not saying a word. Why? Because his father's not saying a word. We go before the shearer as a lamb that is silent. Go to the cross with your mouth closed. Don't worry about what this is. Step into it. The greatest act of faith Jesus ever performed was walking to the cross with his mouth closed. He asks you to follow him by faith. We head to the cross. We don't always know what all it means. See that even if my theology of what the cross is doing isn't necessarily theologically sound, it works. Here's, a, here's an example. This is the best I know. It's the best I got. The American soldier dies on foreign soil. We say he died for our freedom. But if you had asked him right before he died, it's doubtful he would have said that. In fact, he might have said, I don't want to die at all. He might have said, I don't even want to be here. He might have said, if I can keep from dying, I'm going to keep from dying. He might have said, I was drafted against my will. He might have said, I turned left when I should have turned right. I don't know what he would say, but you know what helps us when they bring the flag-draped casket home? He died for you. And we go, okay. Now, I'm not a political commentator, and I don't want to comment on whether or not that is appropriate for us to view the casket coming off the plane that way. But you know for a fact that framing it helps us give an understanding that whether or not that was the way it was, it gives us an understanding of what it is. I think the cross is similar. I know it's a weak analogy to ever compare anything to Jesus, but it's the best I have. There's a lot going on at the Calvary. I think the worst thing we can do is to take people's cross and beat them up with it. Oh, Jesus wasn't doing that at the cross. Jesus didn't take that away at the cross. God wasn't doing that at the cross. And we have become theological snobs. I mean, I see people on social media that fight about the soteriology of the gospel, about the Christology of the cross, about what Calvary was doing and what it wasn't, to the point that if I was marginal, I wouldn't even want to follow Jesus if this is what it's going to make me out to be. A snobby know-it-all by a bunch of people that weren't there when Jesus died. And the reality is, is what I'm really looking for is the Jesus that's on the other side of the cross anyway. Do I think he's alive? Okay, well, let's start there. What was he doing here at the cross? Well, it looks to me like he was dying. Yeah, but why? He was dying. Where I want to land is the living of Jesus. So if you've got all these bad ideas about why Jesus died, congratulations. Just run with them. Where you end up at the end of the day is the other side of the needle, man. It's a gateway into something bigger and better. The fact that Jesus is alive is what matters. And we're not serving a dead Jesus. We're serving a living Jesus. Let me read for you a couple of things and I'll let you go. This is Sergius Bulgakov, Russian scholar, Russian philosopher. His sort of seminal work, The Sophiology of Death, 
essays on eschatology, personal political, don't worry about. Don't, don't go look that up and try to read it. But it's there. Uh, sophiology is a deep sort of doctrine about the nature of God. This quote, I thought, this popped to me. We can say that in this fullness of death, or more accurately, in the fullness of Christ dying, the death of every human and of all humanity is included. If Christ redeems and raises every person, then it is only because he co-dies in every person and with every person. Please look at that line again. Pay attention. Let me reread that line. If Christ redeems and raises every person, it's only because he co-dies in every person and he dies with every person. That's the cross that was in your past, the cross that is in your present, the cross that is in your future. That's God dying as you. It therefore follows that Christ, glorified and sitting at the right hand of the Father, even now suffers and dies with the humanity whose collective suffering and death he once took upon himself and exhausted on Golgotha. He once took it upon himself, but if he's alive, he keeps taking it on himself every time you go through it. When you go through tragedy, he goes through tragedy. When you are abused, he is abused. When you are molested, when you are wronged, he is molested. He is wrong. When people go, where's God when this happened? Hanging between heaven and earth. So that at Calvary, whatever happens to you happens to him. And I don't mean what happens to you happened to him. I mean what happens to you happens to him. That's the power of the cross. And why it is a gateway into something bigger, something broader. I've quoted this one for you before, but it's, a, it's one of my favorites. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. What was the cross doing? It was a gateway to the everyone getting to live. Jesus' death is the gateway to everyone getting to live. I want to close by reading to you something from my newest. I am um, done writing my latest book, Greater Than Jonah. I haven't written the conclusion. I am, there's one human being on the earth not named Paul White who has read this book top to bottom, and that is Natasha. There are two other editors who are finishing the 11th chapter. I want to read to you from the 12th chapter. I want to read two paragraphs. This is no kind of shameless plug because I don't have anything to sell. It's not yet ready. It's just my thoughts landing Jonah on the other side of that experience, the other side of the whale ride, the other side of the shrub. Listen to this. Resurrection is the key. Without it, Paul said, we are still in our sins. To get to that resurrection, we must go through the keyhole of death, where a whole new creation is unlocked by the finished work of Christ. Real life, eternal life, is on the other side of that door. And it can be experienced now by those who enter by faith through the way of his death, just as Paul wrote to the Romans that we are baptized into his death and raised into his life, we now walk in newness of life. The sign of Jonah was his three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, a sign that Jesus said would be his also. That sign would be the only one offered to the evil and adulterous generation of Christ's day. Jesus would crash the party of death and take power by losing. Bursting into the heart of the earth, the abode of the dead, Jesus would win 
by the most unbelievable of ways. If you can't beat them, join them. Death could not be defeated. It always wins. So Jesus died and then resurrected, doing the one thing God had wanted to do all along. He created a new man, not from the dust of the earth, but from the dust that returned to dust. Death was just a prelude, the lobby of the resurrection. And resurrection is the end game for God. By end game, I'm not referring to the final event, but the thing that God was doing all along. It could be summed up like this. Jesus did not come to make your life better or to fix your problems. Jesus came to raise the dead. Man, I believe that. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you for tonight. Thank you for this journey this week into this, the eye of the needle, this, this excitement of seeing everything pulled through Christ so that out the other side can be a newness of life. May we have a fresh revelation of what the cross did. Forgive me, Father, for all of the times I've tried to knock down what people thought the cross was doing. Wherever they are in this journey, Father, you'll use it. What we want to do in this hour is help them to see that what really matters is that on the other side of it, they are a new creation. And in that, we are so thankful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.